You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest, fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Today, we're going to discuss what cooling did we see in the GTA in May 2021. We're starting to get some stats. Trev hasn't come out yet, so you're getting the inside scoop ahead of time. And is Canada running out of land? Did we finally hit max capacity here in this great country? And how did the landlords become the bad guy post-COVID? Some of the things we're going to discuss today on our show and this afternoon, I'm going to have a dentist appointment, which is great. Now that we're vaccinated, feeling a little safer, go check out what they got going on these days. I don't know about you, but I love my dentist. He received an award for being the best dentist in town. Funny enough, they gave him a little plaque. (laughs) But I wanted to squeeze in a podcast for you this morning. Before I head out the door as a broker investor myself, I want to know what's going on in the market. And guess what time my dentist appointment is scheduled for? The best time of day for a dentist appointment? 2.30. <laughs> Anyways, we like to have some fun in the show. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button and like if your dentist was wearing a mask before it was cool. Give us some support in the show. If you're following us on iTunes, leave us a review. And we love getting feedback from you guys and keeping you up to date. I mean, we're going to research it ourselves. Why not share the goods? So we're going to discuss... What exactly transpired in May of 2021 now that we've entered the beautiful month of June? We're starting to get hopefully some measures. We've seen some changes. I mean, June 1st, we saw the, the back, what is it, lockdown? Not lockdown. Your stay-at-home owner is expired, which has repercussions in the real estate community, which we'll talk about here as well today. But things are starting to look brighter and nicer. Get outside a little bit, you know? But what about the housing market? Is it also warming up? No, no, my friend. It's actually cooling. We're going to talk about where we're seeing that today. But I thought... As we've come through the heat of the housing market over the last few months, I thought, what better article to kind of set the tone for the show today than out of theatlantic.com. Listen to this quote. A Bethesda, Maryland, so this is out of the States, resident recently included in her written offer, quote, a pledge to name her firstborn child after the seller, according to the CEO of realty site Redfin. So wild, she did not get the house. What do you mean it didn't work? It didn't even work. Come on. Opportunity to brand yourself, no? (laughs) You know, we like to keep the Watson Estates thing alive. Maybe if they name their kid Watson. I don't know. I don't need an extra $10,000. The name thing sounds pretty cool, no? But in Toronto, May 2021, the market does appear to be cool. And we're going to start with a Globe and Mail article called Toronto Housing Market Cools Down in May as Exhausted Buyers... Take a break. Here's what they say. Toronto's housing market slowed in May, the second straight month in declining sales as buyer fatigue set in and prices fell in two areas outside the city. We're going to talk about those in a second. Where is that? But it was still just looking over from the, I guess, high level. It was above the 10-year average for May, but 12.5% lower than April. Talking about sales, number of sales. We'll talk about price in a second. But in the city itself, Toronto, as well as areas west and north and east, sales all declined by, get this, double digits. Woo! According to Treb. Treb's going to be releasing those stats to you very shortly in the next couple of days. Hopefully before the weekend, but who knows these days. In the previous month, sales fell by 14%. So we're starting to see a dropping in sales activity coming down. What is this? Kind of odd given the season. 
But across the Toronto area, the average selling price reached a record high. So prices are still on the way up, increasing year over year 30%. How ridiculous is that? The pace of price increase was about 2% month over month. So we got 30% over the course of the year. But over the last month in May, we see only this minor pathetic increase of 2% month over month. Slower than a year than earlier this year, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But notice the price, we see sales coming down, but we don't see the price dropping. It's just not rising as fast, which in my opinion is great news, right? Fantastic news. So we're going to look at some of Realosophy's monthly findings as well, just to kind of add on to some of these over overarching stats. So here's what they say. New listings are also seeing a downward trend since March. New listings even. Interesting, which again is not typical, kind of pointing to maybe we had an earlier spring, which we were describing to you the last few months. But the spike in new listings in March suggests the exuberance early in the year may have pulled some new listings forward, which is now re resulting in month over month declines. In other words, yes, we're in May, which should be kind of the peak of the spring, but let's face it, spring came early this year. This isn't a normal year. So we're starting to experience an early summer. What do you mean? People want to go outside, experience the beautiful weather, get out there. You know, who wants to look at houses? <laughs> Indoors activities are better done earlier in the spring, but active listings are still well below 2018 and 2019 levels. Interesting. This is almost entirely driven by low rise housing. Active listings for condos are similar to the levels we saw in 2018, 2019. So we still see uh, the majority of the pressure in these low-rise communities. We're going to dive deeper into the condo space, especially if you're a condo owner, you're not going to want to miss it. But overall, the data still points to a very hot housing market with roughly one month of inventory. Guys, super low. One month across the GTA, houses and condos. But on the ground, we are seeing a very mixed market. Many houses are getting fewer showings and fewer offers than months ago. I don't know any of you guys. I know I'm not crying over the several, several multiple offers, bidding wars, people saying, I'll name my kid after you for goodness sake and still losing. <laughs> I think we're, that's better left in the history books. But my expectation was harder times would be ahead for cottage cities. If you've, if you followed my show, that's kind of been my thought. If there's a bubble, I'm even in, what is it? Real estate wealth magazine saying, if there's a bubble, though, I don't think there is, but if there was, it would be in cottage countries. Well, guess what? We're seeing that in the May stats in Simcoe, north of the city and closer to cottage country. The home price index dropped month over month, 6%, 6% drop in the home price index, the CPI. Interesting. But everyone seems convinced cottages will go up by double digits forever, right? Forever. Perpetual. Well, as the dentist said in court, you can't handle the tooth. <laughs> Boy, I've got some good tooth jokes today. Better brace yourself. <laughs> but moving on to some of the other cities. We see in Halton, home prices fell 5%. They're the other loser in the equation. But when we look across the board, generally we see kind of flat or increasing. We see York is up 2% month over month. Durham, Northwest Peel, they're either flat or slightly up. But when you ask Treb, Looking forward, you're going to see this in a lot of the quotes that are going to come out from Treb in the next few days. Treb predicted that home prices would continue to rise with listings down month over month, including for condos in the city of Toronto. The average price of a condo fell by 1% in May after climbing for three consecutive months. It's about time. I'd say we're due. Due for that appointment. I'll tell you, dentists are really good at keeping an appointment. 
<laughs> side note, not in the script, but just a side note. May we all as salespeople be that adamant of having someone walk in our office. Blogto.com had an article specifically focused on condos. It reads, hardly anybody is buying condos in downtown Toronto anymore. That's the name of the article. Here's what it says. New data from May, courtesy of condo listing site Strata, shows that sales. So we're going to start with sales. Then we're going to get into price. Sales in the region are down again after a flurry of activity from late 2020 into the first few months of the year. The number of condos switching hands was up this May compared to the same month last year, given the fact that it was fairly early days of the pandemic last year. No, duh, easy target to beat. But compared to a very hot March, only a couple years ago, a couple months ago, sales numbers were down a whopping, get this, 23%. Wow. March, April, May, 23%. My goodness, big drops off in the number of sales. What about price? What about price? Well, prices also were slightly down. Actually, we're at 1,066 bucks per square foot, which is still crazy high in downtown in May compared to what was 1,091 per square foot in April. So we also see price on a per square, per square foot basis dropping over the last month or two. Here we go. Yet for some reason, they keep building small condos. Why do builders do that? Well, maybe the answer is here in a post from Dr. Mike P. Moffitt, who said in the quote, why are there so many one bedroom units being built in my city file says in just three years, listen to this, the number of international students rose in the GTA by 50,000, which is crazy, in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, 12,000, in London and Ottawa, 7,000, and in Windsor and St. Catharines, 5,000. So we're seeing... We have a big call for massive immigration, but we're seeing a large number coming to our city, the GTA, the GTHA, these amounts going directly into school. International students may be a leading cause of some of this immigration that we're experiencing. But with 50,000 international students coming to the GTA over three years, it shouldn't shock you that rent rates are beginning to climb again. And we're tracking that as well. But you know what is surprising? A local dentist <laughs> was arrested recently for dealing drugs. I'd been going to him for six years and never knew he was a dentist. <laughs> oh, which brings me into my next topic. This topic is called, Is Canada Running Out of Land? We're going to talk about if that is in fact the case. Could Canada be running out of land? I mean, it's big, no? Big, no? <laughs> but I want to discuss first, before we get into that, the struggle of the modern buyer. What is the challenges that buyers are facing today? Is it not any different? Maybe millennials and whatever the heck other generations want to buy, buy their first home right now. Maybe they're just whining. Maybe just a bunch of whiners. Because back in my day, 1992, we didn't have those kinds of problems. According to a Globe and Mail article, called 2021 versus 1992. I couldn't afford my Toronto house if I had to buy in Canada's current real estate market. We're going to discuss some of the major differences that the Globe is pointing out. Here's what it says. Buying a home in the Toronto area in 1992 was a bit of a stretch for 20-something couples. Forget 20-something these days. But you got it done without much drama. That's how I recall things when my wife and I bought our first house almost 30 years ago. So I'm going to jump all the fluff and we're going to get into some of the numbers. Listen to this. In 1992, their down payment at 10% of the purchase price was around 21500 Deposit. Down payment, sorry. We used the federal home buyer's plan to withdraw money from our RRSP. And we also had a little parental help. But the bulk of our down payment came from saving money ourselves. Interesting fact, mortgage financing was easy to line up because his wife's employer offered reduced mortgage rates for employees. 
Good luck getting any benefits. You want a Christmas party? Bun you. Dental coverage? Okay, fine. We'll still give you that. But I recall our rate being around 7%, he said, which seemed fine. He goes on to talk about how it had been 20% in, in 1981. So, I mean, 7%, no big deal. Then he goes on, mortgage payments were $1,400 a month. And with property taxes and heat, another $400 a month. Lenders say home-related costs plus property tax and heat should come out between 32 to 39 at the top end percent of gross income. Well, they made it under the bar at 30.9%. Well, let's take the same example today. I mean, this is a great company. They're getting those kinds of benefits. Maybe, maybe they can afford a house if anyone. Well, let's adjust it for today. And that's what they do here. Based on inflation, their income combined would be just over $117,021. The average house in Toronto, get this, $1.025,200. Crazy, $1.025 million or 8.7 times the inflated adjusted income that these folks have. The down payment, of course, we know you go over a million dollars, you need 20%. So your down payment requirement jumps well over 21,000, all the way up to $205,000. <laughs> but back in 1992, they say, down payments were less than one third of our gross household income. Today, they're almost 1.75 years of income. Wow. With a 20% down payment at a current five-year rate of 2.09, which is very competitive for today's market, the monthly payment on the average price home in Toronto would be $3,500. $1,400 was before. $3,500 today. And add $550 for property taxes and heat and all that fun stuff comes out at 41.5% of income, which is a deal breaker. You don't even qualify. Can't even buy that house. Even if you could, you couldn't. <laughs> So they say this is how they wrap up this article. We're going to start talking about if land is available. Maybe it's a supply issue in a second. But buying a house in Toronto back in 1992 was a bit of a stretch for young couples, but nothing insurmountable. Nothing like this. In today's market, we wouldn't be able to afford a house we used to own. They could even buy their same house. So maybe 1992 is a little walk down memory lane for some of you. But you can't look forward without revisiting the past. Even the dentist asks, when was the last time I flossed? Like, bro. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> uh, but maybe it's a supply issue. Maybe it's just a matter of supply. That's, that's the narrative. No, I think that's the primary reason. Supply. After all, we don't have any more land. This is Canada. No. So we're going to jump into a Better Dwelling article that's going to paint further. Talking about history. We talked about 1992. But we're going to go further back into memory lane. We're going to talk about if there was ever a time in history where we struggled with land. This is what the article is all about. It's called Canada's Running Out of Land. It does that every few years. <laughs> Here's what they say. I love this intro. Running out of land as a Canadian is as Canadian as hockey, maple syrup, or laundering money for global crime networks. In fact, Canadians love running out of land so much they do it every few years. It turns out Canadians feel this way at the top of every real estate bubble, though. Going through newspaper archives all the way back to the 1930s, we can find a whack of examples. And that's what they're going to do here. But I want to talk about the narrative. I think they made a really good point. Talking about Hong Kong. There's someone to complain. It's Hong Kong, right? Well, Hong Kong land is so scarce, they're currently considering a plan to build artif an artificial island right now. Politicians from the region argue this would help with housing affordability. More land, we need to build it. Just put the land in and we're good, right? All they need to do is spend billions of tax dollars to build more land for developers to develop. Well, listen to this. A Hong Kong urban studies professor had a different take. Professor Mi Kang Ng, MKN, crunched 
the numbers and found 24% of the region's land is developed. 24%, less than a quarter. Most people assume the rest is protected land, but it turns out that's not the case. Only 46% of the land is actually legally protected. That leaves 30% of Hong Kong with development potential not currently used. Obviously, she thinks it should be used before disrupting marine life, spending billions of dollars, building more land. Even one of the most densely populated regions in the world has a ton of land. But here in Canada, no, no, GTA, no, no. Now you can see kind of where this article is stemming from. So surely Toronto is running out of land. And here's some of the articles we've seen in the past. Because some people would say the GGH, the Greater Golden Horseshoe, has plenty of land for development. If you actually look at the numbers, that is in fact the case. We saw a massive spread. Uh, rise in house prices shortly after this kind of conservation of this land. The horseshoe was protected because of this impression that we're running out of land. Well, listen to this. The GGH has 125,600 hectares of land available for redevelopment. According to the study of that land, 103,000 are designated greenfield, untouched and raw land often used for development. So a good chunk of that is ready to be developed. This land should cover more than enough land for housing and development until at least 2031, which is 10 years, which does seem like a short period of time. But for context, the city of Toronto is 63,000 hectares large. So this area that can be developed would make two more Torontos. You could put two more full Torontos. Is it going to take 10 years to develop an entire two more Torontos? Maybe not. I think 2031 might even be a stretch. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it which is probably bad for your teeth. So maybe not. (laughs) My teeth are pretty stained as it is, right? My dentist asked me, do you smoke or drink coffee? I drink it. Duh. (laughs) So here's some of the history lessons when we look back at old articles. Let's cut to the chase. So we see one in 1988. Listen to this. In it, experts explain a lack of land. 1988, that drove prices higher and now frontage is so rare. This is the article. Frontage is so rare that it hit 3,000 per foot. If you got a front one foot, you get 3,000 for the late 1980s. That's a lot of cash. 40 feet is $120,000, which is $240,000 in 2021 dollars. In 1989, experts predicted single-family homes would be done. It was like, this is the end of it. This is the last time. All future buyers could only afford condo apartments from now on. How ignorant. How ignorant. For context, about half of the homes sold in the GTA resale market are detached units today. The region still hasn't even hit the condo apartment apocalypse 32 years later. In 1991, they say this. This is an article. Direct quote. They've got to sell land each year to show positive cash flow, but they're running out of land. Talking about Toronto developers. They have to sell it to make money. The authors argue they needed more zoning because there was not enough housing in the area. As a result, house prices would continue to rise due to a lack of development space. Sound familiar? Prices dropped just a few months after for nearly five years. I guess they found more land. (laughs) 1979, we found out downtown Toronto ran out of land and consequently there would be no more luxury hotels in downtown region we can't afford to build luxury anymore the location in the toronto market will attract business clientele and their limited opportunity to develop competitive luxury hotels in this area because there is no land available we can't even do it can't even do it i mean there's three right now off the top of my head that i can think of luxury hotels being built so yeah right yeah right we have tons of professionals tons of tourists pouring into toronto You know what they call a boat full of dentists? (laughs) A tooth fairy. (laughs) But we have to be nice to them. Be kind to those dentists. They have fillings too. (laughs) 
1976, quote, undeveloped land is rare in Metro now and almost non-existent outside of Scarborough. They point out that 17,000 new luxury homes were built and sit vacant, quote, brand new and unoccupied. They prove the argument there is no housing shortage in the metro, only a shortage of housing people can't afford. They're so expensive, people can't even live there. This is in 1976. I wasn't even a thought by then. <laughs> but here's my personal favorite. This is, my, this is the best one. That's why I save it for last. In 1991, I was around for that one, quote, Burial space is running so short in Metro Toronto that the dead may soon be commuting to the suburbs for their final resting place. How hilarious that they got an article clipping Toronto losing ground in cemetery business. Dead may have to be buried in suburbs. <laughs> and <coughs> no one ever died in Toronto again because it was too expensive. <laughs> there you have it, guys. There you have it. We have a supply shortage. We have no more land. Not true. And if it was true, it's been true for decades and decades and another decade to come. All right, let's get into hot topics. And also subscribe and like if you can't afford to die. Please do that as well. Give us support on the channel. We also have an investor list. If you made it this far in the show, and you're looking to invest in off-market deals. We have some sent one out a couple days ago or last week. And uh, yeah, lots of opportunities out there, guys. And we're happy to share those with you as well. Financialpost.com, our first hot topic disappointing GDP growth offsets worries central bank. The governments are overdoing it. So we talk a lot about interest rates, right? And we'll get more into that. Actually, let's, let's leave that one for a second. But I want to talk about the GDP because Canada's economy grew at an annual rate of 5.6% in the first quarter. A somewhat disappointing reading that will serve as a counterweight to worries the central bank and government have overstimulated the recovery. So people think, oh, you overstimulated, overspent. You gave them... You 10x their money or whatever, 7x or whatever the number is. I don't even know anymore. It's ridiculous. People made way more income than they should have during COVID. Well, if we're still not able to catch up to the expected GDP, then maybe this is a counterweight. As they say, every month we have a snapshot of the GDP numbers to see where we're at. Well, it's like a dental x-ray or as I call it, toothpicks. <laughs> and this is what we got in front of us today. But most Bay Street forecasters had predicted growth of around 7% during the first three months of the year. Even the BOC, the Bank of Canada, got ahead of itself and also forecasted growth of 7% in the latest quarter outlook in April. That's what they expected, even the Bank of Canada. Separately, we saw StatsCan said GDP as measured as industry output likely decreased by 0.8% in April. Maybe it's even going down, which would be the first monthly decline in a year. Ew. So how does this impact interest rates? Well, the Bank of Canada already kind of trimmed their weekly purchases of Bank of Canada government, or sorry, Government of Canada bonds and said in April that would opt to raise benchmark interest rate in the second half of next year, 2022, which was a bit of a jump ahead from originally we were expecting 2023. Well, with slightly weaker trajectory for economic growth right now, will probably curb any further retrenchment, they say, at least until policymakers get a read on how consumers respond as provinces loosen health restrictions this summer. But a large chunk of that, as we've kind of reported here and we'll do again today, goes to housing. I mean, housing is a beast as it comes to the GDP. Accounting for 8.6% of GDP, matching the previous record set only in 1987. And, and if you recall, 1987, they had a supply shortage. <laughs> but spending on real estate surged. It surged in the fourth quarter at 9.4%. There were two reasons to be wary of the economy's reliance on housing. Here's our problem, folks. Number one is there's too much money available for investments being plowed into unproductive assets. Wait a minute. Real estate is unproductive? 
Kind of. I mean, it's a place to live. You ask a tenant, they would agree. It's unproductive. Robbing entrepreneurs and executives of the money they need to expand their businesses and what? Create jobs for those tenants. And the other reason is it creates household debt, right? Piling on the debt as prices run away. Even if households are safe from default, much of their available incomes will be tied up in their homes. House poor, or is house rich, cash poor. That means future consumption could depend on households' willingness to take on yet more debt. You know what? I had a bunch of money, Mr. Trudeau. I bought a house, and then I bought another house, and then you made it harder to buy a house, so I couldn't buy another house. But now I got no more money. I got no more money. Not to mention, they might increase interest rates. I might need to have some money set aside to service that debt. What you mean you want me to spend money on other things? Bringing me to topic number two. June 1st just happened. Mortgage stress test rules take effect. We had some changes, which obviously has made it more difficult to qualify for a mortgage. If you qualified for 500,000 at the end of May, well, today you qualify at 479,000. So it's jumped from 4.79 qualifying rate up to 5.25, making it a little bit harder. Now, I know a lot of lenders had factored that in ahead of time, so it's not going to have any knee-jerk reaction, but it's affecting affordability for Canadians. So you want to talk about why the party is maybe ending across the country. Maybe that's one of the reasons. But getting a property finance these days is a science or more like oral surgery. It's like pulling teeth. <laughs> All right. I saw a Google article here called Federal Government Launches New Home Retrofit Grant Pro- Pro- Program. Sorry, that wasn't even an ar- That was a, an email that I got from Treb talking about this new rebate program, which every one of you, if you can, should be taking advantage of it. Free money. Free lunch. Anyone? Free lunch. The Canada Greener Home Grants Program. Isn't it greener like a booger? Anyways, funded to the tune of $2.6 billion will offer homeowners grants of up to 5,000 bucks and put towards energy saving projects, including insulation, air sealing and thermostats, energy efficient heating and cooling equipment, solar panels, energy efficient windows and doors. Yo, those guys with those super cool Nest thermostats, just do it for free, bro. The program will also include programs up to 600 bucks that can be used for Energuide home energy audits and the Canada Greener Home Grant Program is expected to award 700 grants, 100,000 grants over seven years. Maybe that could be you. Why not? I don't see why not. You know, because we all get a little more demand in the rental industry. I think that would be important. I think it's very vital we boost that industry these days (laughs) if it wasn't competitive enough. I mean, if you're going to dump money, I know this was a campaign promise now fulfilled. Thank you for fulfilling your promises. But if we're going to dump money, why not offer self-employed folks dental coverage, bro? Come on now, your boy. (laughs) You know what dentists give for a dollar these days? Buck teeth. (laughs) I know, I know. Liberal justice warriors, they, they don't like dentists, right? They make teeth straight and white. Not cool, not cool. So how many secondary units are in Toronto? How many? I mean, maybe this is a good question. And where do we stack up against other neighboring cities? Well, as a percentage of ground-oriented properties with secondary units, Toronto actually takes the top spot by quite a margin. 15.5% of all ground-type homes have separate entrances. I mean, it makes sense. One in five Canadians own more than one property. Maybe people are using them as rental income. Followed by Brampton, Guelph, Sudbury, Thunder Bay, Oshawa, Mississauga, down the list. But then we also want to look at the size of those apartments because Toronto, they've got a lot of these units. Are they big? Are they small? Where do we stack up? Well, according to Scott Ingram on Twitter, Toronto was the third smallest average size for a basement apartment across the province at 719 square feet. Not a surprise given the high concentration downtown. On the list, 
As far as small goes, we got Greater Sudbury, Thunder Bay, Toronto, then London, Oshawa, St. Catharines, Guelph, Kingston, Ajax, Kitchener. That's the short list. <laughs> the big list, we have at the top five spots in the 905, we got Vaughn, almost 1,200 square feet. Let's go. Burlington, Richmond Hill, Oakville, Milton. There you go. There's your list. You can see where, you can check that out if you want as well online. But that just gives you a little bit of insight on where your rental property stacks up against your neighbors. Which brings me to my last and final topic. How did the landlord become the bad guy post-COVID? Dude, I'm, I'm just trying to make a living, bro. I'm just trying, to, just trying to feed my family, trying to grow my portfolio. Isn't that a good thing? Well, not so much post-COVID. And it all stems from articles like this. CTV News, Ontario's eviction ban lifts with stay-at-home order. Advocates call for an extension. So as of June 1st, the stay-at-home order ended at the same time, at the same moment, you're allowed to evict again. I can have a sheriff come in, kick that dude out. He wasn't paying me rent for the last five months. Adios, amigos. Housing and tenant advocates are calling on Ontario to reinstate a ban on residential evictions that lifted Wednesday as the province's stay-at-home order expired. Please let them stay in their house, according to Acorn Canada, an advocacy group. Keeping everyone housed is one of the most important public health measures during a pandemic. They need a place to live. That's so important for public health. We know that the pandemic is far from over. Are you looking at the same charts I'm looking at, bro? Come on. We're allowed to go out. I mean, grandmas can hug nowadays. <laughs> Amina Gamulin, a tenant facing an eviction order, said the lifting of the ban was highly concerning. And this is the perspective that we have. Listen to this. It's been stressful. So stressful, she said. Adding that a number of her neighbors are also facing eviction orders and are still without work. I feel like they got this own little group of people not paying rent. We're just friends. But listen to this. For those people who have lost work, they lost their jobs. GDP is so bad. I lost my job which is a real thing. It's going to be very hard for them to catch up. She says, I don't even have a job. I'm going to pay my rent. Now you're going to kick me out. Okay. I fail to see as a landlord myself. Okay. I'm biased. You're biased too. I fail to see how that's the landlord's problem. If the government wants to step in, the government can step in. But why, if you're not going to pay me rent, are you going to handcuff me to that tenant? Instead, what they've done is they've turned landlords and tenants against each other. The tension between landlords and tenants wasn't done purposely. It comes with trying to fix a nail-biting situation. It's like when a dentist makes a mistake. Accidental. <laughs> Eviction hearings have been ongoing throughout this whole time, which has been good, I suppose. But the end of the ban means sheriffs can now once again evict people out. Quote, the province's decision to now continue nearly all public health restrictions except the suspension of eviction enforcement re re represents a clear prioritization of landlords' financial interest. They're watching out for the landlord over the health and safety of low income and racialized tenants, their families, and their communities. The fact that you can kick those people out because they're not paying rent just goes to show you're just trying to protect the income of the landlord. Bro, business transaction. You owe me rent, dude. You haven't been paying rent for a long time. Not to mention... No, let's move on. <laughs> We're not going to mention the not to mention. But a spokesman for the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Here's what he says. Throughout the pandemic, the government has encouraged landlords and tenants to work together in harmony. It's an opportunity for you to get closer. And the vast majority have done so. They say, yeah, I guess so. Some have by necessity. Right, right? <laughs> I hope so. I think for, for some of the larger landlords we've had come on, that is absolutely the case. But there is a lot of people that are struggling. Landlords and tenants are hardly getting along these days in a lot of cases. They're like dentists and manicurists. 
They're just fighting tooth and nail. <laughs> so here's what I want to get into. Because obviously we've got in defense of landlords, we've got a lot of advocacy groups. I'd love to see a landlord advocacy group. Where do you see that? They get they get knocked down the moment they pop up. But in count in combating this, we see we see people taking additional steps. It's like this is our opportunity to really stick it to that landlord. Blog TO. Toronto neighborhood just bought a building to save it from greedy landlords. They're putting money where their mouth is. <laughs> That's such a good like pun. Like, anyways, moving on. Moving on from the dentist thing. A Toronto community group just bought a mixed residential and commercial building to save it from a possible ghost hotel renovation and to preserve the affordability of their neighborhood. This is in Kensington Market Community Land Trust. This is the company. A community group started in 2017 to protect social and economic diversity of the neighborhood announced that on May 31st, they bought 54 and 56 Kensington Avenue. Whoopty freaking do. Someone bought a property. What's interesting here is they're literally doing it to try and prevent a landlord from doing what landlords do, which is make money. When it comes up for sale, the land trust recognized that a new commercial landlord would not be in the best interest of the tenants or the, the neighborhood, aka people would need to pay market rent or leave. About two years ago, new owners of the building were trying to get the tenants to leave, possibly to start an Airbnb or hotel, but there was a strong attempt to move the tenants out. The land trust had launched a GoFundMe page. So if you want to get involved, you want to get involved too. You can join their GoFundMe campaign. They got a goal of 50,000 bucks to cover the remaining quote, small gap in the purchase of the property for repairs and maintenance for the first year and to continue their work. So I just find it super interesting. I, I love to see people are so into it. They agree so much with their cause. They spend money. And I think that's a fantastic thing. But landlords operate a business, not a charity. You want a charity? GoFundMe. <laughs> But this is nothing new, right? Don't hate the players, hate the game, hate the system. The pursuit of land and wealth is at the core of Canadians' history after all. I mean, that, that led to some pretty bad news these days with residential schools, but that's the pursuit. We want land. I want to grow my portfolio. The 2020s will be defined by your ability to own land. If you build your real estate empire, there's nothing wrong with wearing a little crown. My dentist tells me I'll be getting mine this afternoon. Recognition at last. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed some of the dental jokes today. If you could, please subscribe. Hit that like button if you think I still need to brush up on them. And I'll see you next time. Take care and keep it real.